This is the Scale with Psychology podcast, where you're going to optimize your psychology to exponentially scale your business and become the ultimate version of yourself. I'm your host, Ani Manian, widely known as the Mind Whisperer and trusted advisor and psychedelic therapist to the world's top entrepreneurs and leaders. And I believe that entrepreneurship is a mental game. And the main constraint in any business is not the strategies and tactics, but the psychology of the founder. And with each episode, I'm going to help you take your life in business to levels you never thought possible. If you're ready to play the game of life and business in God mode, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, hello. Welcome back. My guest today is Stephen Sclerou. He's the co-founder and CEO of Synaptic, an artificial intelligence solutions company. And they believe that AI and machine learning is the natural path forward to solving some of the most important challenges of our time. They have clients in over 20 sectors, many of whom are in the healthcare industry. And Stephen actually started his career at Ernst & Young, and he has over a quarter of a decade of experience as a management consultant and a tech product leader at startups and public companies. CEB was acquired by Gartner, where he played a pretty pivotal role, as well as Sage Software. He's built and managed globally distributed teams, which has been an interesting thing over the past 10, 20 years. And he's created lots of productive partnerships, and he's led due diligence for numerous tech acquisitions. And he's generally sold and delivered services and products to a variety of companies in the tech, construction, healthcare fintech, legal, media, automotive, and education industries. In the past decade, he was the CTO or VP of product at three innovative SaaS-based product companies using big data, machine learning, mobile and cloud-based technologies. And he is absolutely passionate about the intersection of healthcare and technology innovation. Steven, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the origin story of Synaptic, how it came to be, what led you to start the company. Yeah, it's fairly circuitous, but I'll say right up front that I think I had an innate goal growing up to run things. In high school, I was in multiple bands, play guitar, as you can see behind me. And I was the one that was really eager to bring the team together in the band and to get gigs and all that type of stuff. In college, I started a club and, and I just realized I'd love bringing people together and doing things. And I don't know, about 15, maybe 18 years into my career, I finally got to the point where I felt like I had grown enough knowledge in a lot of business functions that I was ready to take on that role. And just from a family and economic perspective, I was at a point where I could afford to take a big risk as well. So Synaptic was really the origin of bringing together all these amazing people that I've met across all these jobs and doing something that we all thought would be impactful and meaningful for our lives and taking a leap. Was it more of a function of having essentially assembled the right team and then looking for what value that team is best poised to deliver? Was that sort of how the genesis of the company came to be? I wish it was that simple. I have to tell you, there are dozens of people I would love to work with that I've worked with in the past. 
and I just can't afford them all. Really, the genesis was some side work I was doing while I was VP of product at a company. I bumped into an opportunity related to machine learning and being more of a software engineer slash product manager and less of a data scientist. I knocked on the door of a former colleague of mine and said, hey, do you want to work on this together? And we had a great time doing it. And then we got more and more business. And then as revenue increased, both him and I were able to tap our networks to bring the team together. So the mission is still in play and we're eager to grow and bring in more talent, but it's been a particularly hard year. This has been a little bit of a downturn for us, which is the first time in seven years. Tell us a little bit about that. What has been most challenging about this year and past couple of years? It's weird. We doubled our revenue coming into 19, 2019, and we hit the pandemic, obviously, in March 2020. And we thought, oh, no, we better hold back on all of our cash and make sure that we're being very conservative because we have no idea where the world's going. At 2020, we doubled our revenue again. And I was like, oh, my God, like maybe the pandemic is great for our type of companies. So then we got into 2021. Okay, let's see how things go. Not sure what's going on in the world. And 2020 was another good year for us. And so then we've got cocky and we're like, okay, great. We've been able to save a bunch of cash. Let's start growing the company. So 2022 was the year that we started growing our company. And then what happened as we got into spring of 2022, summertime, it seemed like all of our sales opportunities became very difficult to close. And I think a lot of that came from the downstream impact of the pandemic, the supply chain, investors now starting to hold back. Yeah, everybody started to hold none of the purse strings or their wallets and waiting to see what would happen. So that was unfortunate timing. The good news is that we've been a very cash conservative company and we're not in dire straits and we have lots of great clients that continue to give us business and we're extremely thankful for that. But had we have spent all of our money and really grown our team significantly, like we would be letting a lot of people go. And that's really difficult. And that's something that I've gone through many times and prefer to avoid if possible. It's really interesting. That mindset of being cautious with the purse strings is not very common. I see... Some founders, and we're seeing the evidence of this, huge surge in hiring and spending in the last few years. And then now a lot of layoffs, a lot of tightening and contraction to, uh, to adjust and recalibrate to the market conditions. Is that, that, that financial intelligence, is that something that you've always had as a character trait or attribute? Or is that something you had to cultivate in response to, let's say, adverse and challenging experience? So great question. First of all, I'll say that I spent most of my career on the East Coast in the Washington, D.C. area. And if anything, I constantly heard about the complete opposite perspective on the West Coast. So it wasn't until 2014 that I moved to the West Coast and Portland, Oregon specifically. And that conservative financial perspective was quite different than the environment here. Having been involved in multiple companies where we raised money pretty early in my career, I saw people, this is back in 99, raise a bunch of money and burn a bunch of money on a lot of things that were not important. And so I had seen the woes of borrowing money, wasting money, and then the crunch that happens after that. And so I think between being more conservative East Coaster and having gone through some interesting startups of wasting money. It just became inherent to my being. With that said, I would say that I'm still working through how to 
make the best kind of financial risk decisions. Because the alternate side of that is that we are a bootstrapped company that has been doing quite well, but we haven't really knocked the roof off. And that, I think at the end of the day, is okay as long as we're enjoying what we're doing or making a difference in the world. Whereas I think at a younger point in my career, I was more interested in knocking the roof off and taking more risk. Yeah, it's, I can definitely smell the maturity in the air. Let me ask you this. If you were to paint a picture of what, how the business operates and looks like, how you generate revenue and how all of that flows, what would, how would you describe that? Just so we- yeah. So at the core, we're a services business today. We actively seek opportunities and in industries where we think we can make a difference in the world. And obviously healthcare is one of them. But areas like climate change, conservation, financial services, et cetera, where we can help people is what we're actively seeking. A lot of our business comes through referrals uh, at the end of the day. So again, tying back to having worked in lots of companies, met incredibly credible pe- people. A lot of our business comes from those relationships that we have. But as we drive more thought leadership and uh, share more stories about the good things that we're doing in the world, we're starting to get companies come to us, which has been fantastic. As far as how that turns into revenue, we do projects. Projects have profits. Profits offset the costs of our expenses. And ultimately, we hope to use those profits to invest in IP and creating new products and companies. So that's a vision. And we've had some success on that. We spun out a company a couple of years ago focused on the health, digital health space and treating cardiovascular disease and diabetes with exercise. So we're very passionate about that. But it's a long journey. And instead of taking a lot of money and growing ahead of the revenue, we've just taken this approach of let us grow our own revenue and grow the company as a function of that. So would it be fair to say that the idea is to keep Synaptic as a core business still a services or solutions-focused company and use the testing that happens to establish product market fit with a use case that you can productize and then spin that out separately. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think what we're learning every year is how to fine tune when to make the cut between Synaptic and that product when it becomes its own company. I would say the first one we did was a little early, but it was important because we brought outsiders into that company that weren't part of Synaptic and we didn't want to mix cultures and mix cap tables, but now we're being a bit more conservative and keep incubating them longer and making sure that there really is a product market fit before we spin them out and or put more cash in them. How do you determine if there is product market fit? Do you have a rubric or a framework? I wish. I felt earlier in my career as product manager, it was simpler. Like nowadays, I feel like it's a bit chaotic given the world. Yeah. So for instance, we're doing a lot of work in healthcare and we see product opportunities and we're building solutions. And I don't know if you've worked in healthcare recently, but it's mayhem, right? And there's a lot of interest in innovation, but there's a lot of staff shortages. There's a lot of financial constraints. And unfortunately, there's a lot of patients that have conditions that aren't being treated and things are getting worse. So it's really difficult to navigate it right now. But I'll say our most recent aha is to partner with bigger technology companies that are in healthcare and to leverage their relationships and to bring them value to their customers so that it's not all on us. We're using the ecosystem to to test that market and take less risk as an individual business. And so what allows you to make the call that this particular solution, let's say, 
has enough momentum or critical mass that it's worth stating the risk to spin it out and productize it. Because there are, I know the market's gotten more complex in terms of the determination of product market fit. Yeah. But I'm, I imagine that there is definitely a financial consideration. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's probably a usage consideration as well in terms of adoption. And there's probably a build consideration, how, how easy or challenging it is to productize this and probably a competitive consideration as well. Are we new in the space? Is, has this been done before? And I'm curious, like how, could, let me actually share the overarching question that's coming to mind, which is the typical roadmap that I see for a services company is, you know, one of two paths, right? One is continue to grow the business with that services DNA. And the benefit is that we're basically solving other people's problems. And therefore, it's easier to market and sell. And we're not taking full ownership of the problem, which allows us to arbitrage labor and skills and other points of leverage and make a margin on top and be part of an industry or a set of industries. The drawback that I often see is that there's a high level of variance in the kinds of work and in my model that I've created, I, I call that fragmentation. So when the build or the product portion of the business is fragmented across a variety of use cases, a variety of ideal customer avatars, a variety of kinds of value we're delivering, often a variety of industries, a variety of regulations, a variety of other considerations compliance, HIPAA or PII or whatever it might be, that fragmentation creates complexity. And then complexity is obviously hard to scale in a business. So that creates a natural cap on the growth rate and the growth potential of the business. Now, that obviously a business model that's utilized by large consulting companies like Accenture, McKinsey, Bain, and so on. The other overarching model that I see to scale a business with that DNA is use the consulting portion. And this is what I did, actually. It used the consulting portion of the journey to essentially test out a variety of different, throw many darts on the board, figure out where there's high levels of affinity in terms of product market fit, in terms of value delivered to the user, in terms of natural ease of, of delivery and so on. And then once we figure out the winner, in terms of a use case or a product or a problem to solve, then we go all in on that and transition as fast as possible the service company into a productized service company and then eventually to a product company, which collapses the variance and it allows us to machine the system to deliver value to one user, one problem, one core solution. And then it becomes anti-fragile and it becomes a flywheel because we learn from delivering that value and that value becomes exponentially easier and cheaper to deliver, which then allows us to have more leverage in the marketplace. And then the company can expand vertically in terms of serving more users for that specific problem. And now I'm curious how you see this business and how you're architecting this journey, because it seems like you wanted to keep that services identity and DNA intact. But this is almost a hybrid model where you maintain that variance in one compartment and then you spin off anything separately 
And I'm guessing the spinoff also includes IP. It includes just the business entity itself, the that's right, the technology, the right. build, and so on. Yeah, no, I think your two extremes are, are great models. We're somewhere in between. So I think the downside of the first model as a small business is, to your point, like a lot of variability, both on revenue and projects, hard to scale because you're people-oriented. It's actually fairly hard to sell, right? Because you can't teach a salesperson, here's all the knowledge our team has, go convince other people to buy that knowledge. On the other end of the spectrum, obviously, you're going all in. And from a culture, people perspective less diversity of work, right? So you had all this diversity over the consulting side, which can be fun and engaging. But on the product side, it's like you got to double down on one thing. And the good news is I've been in companies that have tried it both directions, started product, became services, started services, became product. And it's hard. And I acknowledge that, but we're not in a rush. And I think that's the big difference with a lot of companies is like, they're in a rush to go from one to another. We're not in a rush. We're focused on doing good things for the world, starting off with projects and then product tie things into solutions and then going from solutions into products and when enough stars align to become products and separate companies we'll do it and we're still working out what the metrics are to make those decisions but you know, there's only so long you can keep both together because the business models and the cultures and the people are so different but having been someone that started off in services spent most of my time in product and came back to services i think a uniquely positioned to figure out an architecture that works it's just been particularly challenging since the pandemic. Yeah, that's, that's what I was wondering if you're seeing a coming shift to that architecture, given the pandemic and the economic conditions that, that you're experiencing in 2022. Yeah. One of the things I didn't mention, I think that's unique about how we're thinking about it. And I'm sure there's other companies doing it. I just didn't yeah. hear about it a lot prior to Synaptic. And that is we're looking at a lot of our opportunities on the services side as partnership opportunities, almost strategic partners. And so we have some relationships where we're not a pure service provider. We're like a partner okay. and we co-own IP and we can co-market what we're doing. And so thinking about these relationships more as a strategic partnership or mm. attempting to sell strategic partnerships mm. instead of client service relationships, I think gives a small business a leg up and ultimately a potential channel to sell new products. And a completely new economic model as well. If you're depending on how you're negotiating those partnerships and how the contracts are structured. If, you know, there is some equity that you have, it seems like you're sharing IP in some cases, but you might even share revenue and exactly distribution yeah. and, and so on. Exactly. So thinking about kind of the entity structure, yeah, whether it makes sense to do a joint venture or not, at yeah. what point does it make sense to set up a vet, an entity? Because I'm sure you've experienced this. Partnerships are only as good as like, both parties doing something that drives revenue and so many of them dissipate. So I would say we're spending more time figuring out the metrics around that than when as a product we're spinning out right now. There's almost another level of fit that comes into play to evaluate a partnership that's a higher order function than even the product market fit for that use case. Because we have two, essentially two complex systems trying to integrate around a product idea, which may have different sets of values, different missions, different assets that are. Absolutely. And I think particularly in the last five or so years, we've been doing a, work, a bunch of work in the healthcare space. And there's an obvious collaboration between technologists and clinicians and researchers, very different cultures, right? And so part of that calculus is trying to figure out, can we actually 
culturally stay glued together through some joint effort. And it's hard to assess, but I think there's magic that comes out of that, honestly, because there are brilliant people on the line serving patients that need data and insights to be able to scale their business and to serve more patients with better outcomes. And unfortunately, a lot of us technologists have been focused on building tech for tech and not helping society. And so that combination, I think, is just really exciting. And often they have a lot of data as well. It's a different kind of data. But what I've seen really effective is using that data set to guide the architecture of AI ML projects, because it's as good as where we pointed to. That's We're not having like that human in the loop is super important. In right. Build. It, that sounds like a big part of your mission. Will you speak a little bit about, because there's a couple of things I want to highlight about you. A, I want to acknowledge you for the fiscal prudence that has allowed you to essentially buy yourself the luxury of being in this position because you have been and being the word conservative sometimes is used as a pejorative but <laughs> you know what i'm feeling from you is a very level-headed low emotionally variant mature approach to how you're managing cash and one of the things that i think is the ceo's job and i would say the main job is to make allocation decisions of the assets and the resources that the organization has. Money, team and skills, capital, that's also money, but attention, I think is the other big one and energy. And it seems like you're making that decision from the right psycho-emotional state. The second thing that I wanna highlight about you and for all the entrepreneurs listening, I want you to really pay attention to this part. It really struck me when you highlighted that you're not in a hurry. And what I find with a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs, is that they're in a hurry. And when we explore the psychology underneath, what I find is that it, the hurry is almost always a trauma response. Urgency in a business is often a trauma response. And there's two components to it. One is structural, because businesses that raise a bunch of money selling a vision for the future, then have to retroactively justify that valuation by posting growth rates and numbers that, let's just say, might be challenging to consistently hit. And that the founder often psychologically goes one down against the investors. Typically, they project mom and dad on investors because they're essentially providing financial support and safety for the business. And they go into child and from a developmental psychology perspective, it's a whole mess. And that essentially triggers a trauma response, which gets projected onto the team. And for the founder, the team goes into the child role and they're in the parent role with the team because they're setting boundaries. They're telling them when they can show up, when they can take time off. It's basically a total reenactment of the childhood. And then that urgency is then projected on the team. And obviously this compromises psychological safety for the team and you end up with a team that doesn't feel fully psychologically safe. And it, then the team essentially reenacts that trauma response from their nervous systems and the organization's pretty much a mess. That is odd on to most of my startup experiences. 
what I want to acknowledge about you is that you're the, you're the exception in a sea of founders who are all operating from this, let's say this cluster of trauma responses, which basically translates, even if they haven't raised money, this is the second type that I see often, there is, they're operating for a deficit because they have something to prove, or there is some mechanism underneath that requires urgency because they don't feel safe. Most entrepreneurs, regardless of how big the company is and how much they're taking home, psycho-emotionally, they don't feel safe. And it, the most often thing that I see founders do in response to this lack of safety underneath is to exert control because control creates the illusion of safety. And that control typically manifests as urgency. We need to make more money. We have, we need to get to this milestone in 12 months, six months, whatever it might be. We need to dominate the market or some urgency of that nature. And what I'm getting from you is not just a very regulated nervous system and a very regulated psychological system that's very calm and grounded, even when you're having a challenging 2022 in terms of growth. But also, the lack of urgency is actually an unfair advantage. So I would love for you to speak to that a little bit. And perhaps this is, I'm not sure if anyone's reflected this to you, but I'm also curious about the metacognition around what is it like to be acknowledged for something so specific, let's say. I have to admit there is some ounce of paranoia in me. Just I think that's part of what gives me drive. So it's not black or white, right? But I think the projection of that paranoia is hopefully more balanced and more engaging others to take ownership. And that's my personal mission in team building is I want other people to feel like they're owning the business. And I want other people to feel empowered to help navigate through tough times. I don't want to be the person that says, this is what we have to do. I will if we need that. But I'd prefer to hire people that want to grow into being leaders of companies so that they can succeed, succeed me and I can go on to the next thing. And so I'm very focused on the legacy of this business and the empowerment of it, individuals in the business to grow into who they want to be professionally and personally and to make that an environment that works for them. But it's not easy, right? Especially in a downturn, it's a bit harder. And I try very hard to be transparent about where we are and to encourage other people to step up if they'd like to help. But I have to admit, sometimes I get a little frustrated, but I, I try to take an even-keeled approach to that. And instead of getting reactive, be more proactive and encouraging others to, to step up. What feedback. Yeah. And so uh, another piece of appreciation for you is due, because this is another thing that I see a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, which is it feels challenging to maintain a healthy level of detachment from certain outcomes. And what happens is that it's, they go all in or all out. So I see two extremes play out where they either get so attached and invested emotionally into a certain project or certain metric, a certain outcome that the team really has no space or time or allowance to learn and make mistakes and eventually get it right. Therefore, they're never really 
self-sufficient and self-led and self-directed. They're, they stay in child, basically. They, they never have the space to grow into the adult in the organization. And the other extreme is that the founder gets, it turns away basically and says, hey, this is, I'm tired of folding this. This is your problem now. I need to, I need to up-level. Now you're owning this, get it done, I'm out. And it's like putting, it's like leaving for a couple of months or a year and putting a six-year-old in charge of the whole house. It's just not fair. And so what I also find is that founders to compound this, they bounce between these two extremes. So they go from two in to two out. And then they, when the child cannot, when the team or the leader, even an integrator level person in the organization, when they cannot, because they don't have the full domain expertise or the context or whatever the founder is holding, the bigger picture, and they start to fail, then the belief is reinforced that they have to be over-involved and they have to call the shots. So there's a ping pong match. Yep. So I want to validate a, the experience you're having, and also appreciate the self-awareness with which and the obvious grounding from which you're navigating this experience as well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's certainly not perfect. But I think in the end, it's about the team being successful, not me. And I think the key piece that I've learned probably 15 years into my career is team needs to be happy. Day to day, the team needs to be happy and engaged. And if they're not, you're not going to be successful one way or another. Even if you launch a product and a lot of customers use it, it's success is happiness. It's not money. It's not, it's not feeling misaligned with the organization. It just It's really important for the organization to feel like every day is worth their time. Will you speak more about how you've gone about instantiating that? Yeah, so I've built a lot of teams in my career. Some I inherited and was told I have to get rid of all of them because my boss didn't want to do it. Some that I was lucky to build from the ground up. And I guess what I realized was that my strategy has been always put in very strong pillars in the early stages. In other words, other mature, experienced people. And that doesn't necessarily mean age. They could be very young. It's just I think those pillars that you put in early on the team are the the on-ramp for everybody else, right? So if you get those wrong, you have a big organizational problem as you scale. And diversity on that is really important, right? So whether it's different types of people with different experience, I think it's super important because it's the interaction between those foundational pillars that set up the culture for everything else. And by the way, I think a big part of that too is making sure the values of me and those pillars are aligned like inherently. I've been in too many companies where we define the values downstream of the company being formed or the team being formed and they don't represent the team, <laughs> right? And sometimes they don't even represent the leaders of the team, right? So I think it's really important to build that foundation where people already inherently have the same values. You're hiring for those values, but there's enough diversity so that you have unique organizational thought or ideas. And that's hard. It's not simple recruiting. It is intensive understanding of people and how they interact. And most people skip that. And I think, unfortunately, whether it's AI or healthcare, the core of everything we do is people. And some people aren't meant to work together. 
that's okay. But finding the right balance between similarity and diversity is tough, really tough. There's almost a dynamic tension that must be maintained where there's enough convergence, but there's also enough divergence because otherwise the system isn't healthy. Exactly. So, so like I talk a lot about healthy dispute, like I want to create an environment where everybody's okay with calling other people out in a respectful way, because I don't want people holding things inside and then complaining outside of work, because that's not a way to live life in a happy way at all. If you almost imagine a family doing that wouldn't be a healthy atmosphere in that family. People right. will say if they wouldn't feel heard, they wouldn't. And often what I find in businesses is that there's a certain level of conflict avoidance that precludes leaders from A, making hires with this level of thoughtfulness because any diversity in personality or experience is actually threatening to their system. Right. And so they gravitate towards similarity and they fail to hire for their blind spots. And so the organization resembles them and it becomes one global projection of their, I think we need a values alignment. It's hard to hire someone who has very different values and make that work. Yeah. I think it's energetically very expensive and it creates a lot of fragmentation that particularly for a business that's scaling, let's say, or growing or finding its feet, it can often kill a business. And I've seen it do that. So there are things to compromise on. There, it's almost a very clear Venn diagram of where we need similarity. We need similarity in values. We need similarity in basic character traits. Is the person honest? Are they integrous? Yeah. Do they have good ethics? Do they have good morals? Do they communicate? And then there might be other areas where we trade that off and we say, here, we actually want diversity. Maybe it's domain expertise. Maybe it's familiarity with different business models. Maybe they've spent some time in customer support and they've spent some time in sales and they've spent some time in marketing and they have a holistic picture or they are naturally a producer or an innovator or they're high on, let's say, conscientiousness. And therefore, their ability to translate ideas into actual tangible end product is actually very high, which balances out someone else who's very over-indexed on the ideation, but very under-indexed. And that's the reality of organizational design. It's, and this is, I consider this to be the second most important part of a CEO's role. They're actually designing the system that is going to produce value and it's really pointing what you said, and I think anyone listening should pay attention to that. You said, it's my job to make the team successful. And that's different than how a lot of leaders operate, where so much of their own identity is mixed up in the team. So there's a personal stake in there. And when you operate in the way you're exemplifying, where your orientation is to help make the team successful, then the imperatives emerge pretty naturally that, okay, I need to design this system, this organization in a way that naturally allows for its members to be successful versus I need something from them, which is often what happens, not all the time, but that's another gremlin that I see that gets in the way of growth. So as you look ahead, right, let's say, let's say a year from now, and th this might seem this is definitely going to seem like a far-fetched exploration, but if you're up for it, let's play. Imagine it's a year from now, 
and you've 10x this business, what would have happened? I would say first and foremost, we would have more solutions versus custom projects. I think that is a function of 10xing this business. I would say that the individuals that report to me would have larger teams and those teams would exude the same foundation that we put in place from years prior. We would have many more people outside of our company talking about our company in a positive light, and we'd be very proud of that. We would have more customer referrals. And I think at the end of the day, my role would become more about the next 10X, right? So I very much see an opportunity for other people in the company to take over what I do. And I'm coaching them down that path. And that's part of my journey. And that may mean I go run one of the product companies we spent out or I move out of a full-time CEO role. I don't see that a year away, honestly. I see that probably five to 10 years away. But a year out, I think it's about probably more stability in revenue and more people on the ground that that are part of this amazing culture. So let's, that's a really clear and crisp answer to that. So if, if we were to turn that into a roadmap, what do you think the organization needs to look like to let's say index into some of those solutions and effect some of those changes because the way I see it, sometimes the structure and the shape and the design of the organization that's let's say at current level is very different from what it would need to be to to 10x. And the year the time constraint creates an imperative where fundamentally the organization has to change to reflect the increase in value creation versus just adding, spending more ad dollars or just adding more employees of in a way. Yep. If you were to contrast what the organization would look like to be able to deliver that level of output, how would you do that? I mentioned that more solutions would be part of the 10xing. I think behind solutions are more people focused on kind of product management and sales in particular. So those would be two areas that get built out that that are very shallow right now, shallow as far as number of people and processes required to support them. Beyond that, the marketing engine, kind of experimental level, I would say, as a services oh, business. Sorry, you uh, cut out for a second. Yeah. Maybe it was my connection. You said marketing engine and then it froze. Would oh, you- bummer. Yeah, no problem. Marketing for our company for the last couple of years has been an experimental investment, I would say. Obviously, every company needs a website and you need materials for the sales team, et cetera. But I think the challenge we've had in marketing is as a services business, uh, we can really do anything. We've got really intelligent people in the, uh, in the company with lots of experience. But to package that up into something that can be successfully marketed and sold requires more productization. And so I feel like 10xing the company is moving to solutions. Solutions can be packaged and interest can be generated through marketing activities. And so I see the marketing organization having to grow substantially and the marketing, I'd say, analytics and insight generation would be a big part of the success of the company from that point forward. So marketing, product, and sales. Other than that, the technology folks that we'd have, obviously, we'd need a larger team to support all these different solutions. And then as a solution, you need to manage them, right? So there's more of an operations function that would need to be installed as well. There's almost an entirely new organization would need to emerge 
Yeah, we have elements of all the things I just mentioned. It's just, as I alluded to on the marketing side, we're in the experimental phase with marketing. Like we're attempting to generate some inbound interest for a services company, which is not a typical model. Yeah. Because we're trying to get our legs under us to be able to scale that area once once it starts working. Same thing in sales. Like we've productized some of our services and packaged them up with fixed prices and and all the sales materials around it. We use a CRM for sales. So we have a lot of the roots, but we're not quite at the point of bearing the fruit and the plants off of those roots yet. It's just not timing it. Timing isn't there yet. How do you currently acquire customers? What channels do they come in from? Is it all inbound? No. Pretty much none of it's inbound. And that's very different than SaaS-based B2B companies that I've been in the last, whatever, 10 plus years. Yeah. So it's through referrals, right? For the first three years of the company, majority of our revenue came from my network. Yeah. A lot of the amazing people I used to work with are now CTOs, CPOs, CEOs, VPs. And there's already built-in trust because we work together. And so that was initially how we got our first three years of business. From there... We built some relationships with influencers in the industry and then directed consulting opportunities from their networks to us. And now, as I alluded to earlier, we're starting to build relationships with bigger tech companies. And what we're finding is they're much more interested in our solutions versus they are our services. So if we have something packaged that they can sell into their customers, it's so much easier to have discussions and use that channel. But if we're a pure services company, we're just like the thousands of others. I think we have some uniqueness in the area of machine vision and data strategy. And the fact that we're a, kind of a boutique that is much smaller than an Accenture or Deloitte, where we really differentiate is in solutions. Which is also convenient given the direction you want to take anywhere. Yeah, but to your point, we don't have the calculus of knowing exactly when a solution's ready to become a product in a separate company. Certainly the number of customers using it and the revenue right. are, are functions of it, but we're in the early stages. I forget who defined it in this way, but someone talked about product market fit as something that's hard to define, but when you have it, it's unmistakable. Like you feel it. Yeah. And there's a lot of similarities in our experiences as well between you and I. 98% of my businesses come from referrals. And... In a way, that's a gold standard for a business because it speaks to the quality of the product. But the frustrating aspect of it is, as entrepreneurs, we want to lever we can pull. That will correlate to an increase in, at least in leads and prospects and something that creates a list in acquisition. Yeah, I mean, I found it's very difficult to systematize referrals, right? You don't want to prompt a friend to do something for you. You want them to want to do something for you, right? And so the few times we've tried to architect and systematize referrals, it just didn't work. I think even better than that is having them do something because it's in the other party's interests. So I have a framework that I created to essentially pull out and encapsulate enterprise value, particularly for looking at an eventual exit or an acquisition of some sort. What comes up for me as you're talking is that a lot of these companies that would be ideal fits in terms of partnerships, they would have distribution. And the core value we are bringing to the table is some combination of technology IP and product. And the formula that I created 
to pull out enterprise value is technology times product to raise to the power of distribution. Because with most acquisitions, it's a larger whale in the market who has massive distribution, who's looking to acquire some sort of a technology advantage or a productization of a use case that can be applied to their entire distribution. And therefore, it generates exponential value. And that's why someone would pay 25x EBITDA to acquire a business. They're literally paying the next 25 years of revenues because they're expecting a much bigger return from that. I was just thinking, I was just putting my marketing hat on. One avenue to generate perhaps a higher volume of leads could be that maybe there's an analysis around who are the players in the market who have massive levels of distribution, where if we bring one of our solutions to them, we're basically opening up a massive, unrealized tranche of revenue. And so we're not actually an expense. We're actually a revenue generation opportunity. And then because of the way we structure the partnership, maybe we capture and realize some of that frozen potential as well. And everyone's affected by the economic conditions. So if someone comes to the table with potential free revenue, it can be pretty compelling because most of the value that I'm seeing in the past 10 years that's been created, whether it's Airbnb or Uber, it's been unfreezing frozen assets. And one of the ways in which I look at exponential scale with the businesses that I advise and entrepreneurs I work with is how do we, how do we structure either marketing or the offering or a solution in a way that it basically unfreezes a frozen asset and that makes it a true win. And that sort of a proposition is inherently attractive because it shifts how someone perceives it from more work we need to do, more money we need to spend, more stuff. Because selling someone analytics on top of a, let's say, a SaaS technology platform, even if the users are begging for it, in this climate, they would think twice about it. But if it's something that they can monetize, they might treat it differently. I don't know if that's something you've yeah, already I think it's very interesting. My experiences on the partnership side, on one end, I led partnerships at Sage Software. And on the other end, as a startup, built partnerships and distributed products through those partnerships. One of the gotchas I've seen on both sides is that the bigger companies' sales teams have other things to sell, right? So it's like there is a whole kind of channel enablement or channel sales enablement effort. And I think there's a hit rate by which if the, ch the folks that are selling your product don't close deals, they're going to drop them and sell the other things that they can't. So I think there's a whole kind of people training enablement component to this beyond the strategy. I love the strategy yeah. that determines success or failure, right? And just like any other relationship, there's a period of time where that has to work. Otherwise, the mental alignment to your product in the sales of your product dissipates, right? And I think a big part of that is getting the executive sponsor leader in the company to drive the change. And then for you as a smaller business to be a very collaborative partner to make sure that the sales team is successful at yeah. the company. So there has to be like this very collaborative approach 
And the early days that I, when I was involved in this, I thought I could just give them the product, and the marketing materials, they just go sell and it doesn't work like that. Yeah, the enablement piece seems to be a very crucial part in ensuring success for any new solution. Yeah, so I did some work on both sides of M&A. It's like you get really excited about acquiring this company or them acquiring you. But the success of that acquisition is really the post-acquisition integration. And that's the stuff that people don't really talk about. They're excited about the deal and closing the deal. But getting the ROI of the deal is the hard part. It's downstream. Yeah, and it strikes me that in a partnership, that's just as valid and important to think through, particularly when resources are our primary constraint. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you one more question since we're ideating on that stream. Is there a potential for, so that's obviously when the end user of the value is not the company itself that you'd be partnering with, but one of their users. But what if the value is realized by the company itself on some level to unlock new revenue? As an example, maybe the AI uh, solution helps the salespeople make certain decisions differently that allows them to close maybe 23% instead of 19% of the time because now they have these insights that allow them to make better choices. And so the value is being realized one step before and therefore an obvious increase in revenue play. Yeah, at least in our experience, a lot of those are difficult to turn into strategic partners. The anomaly I can share is a company we've been working with in the healthcare space where, yeah, phase one of our relationship was building something that made their business more efficient. Phase two, because the owner is very entrepreneurial, is to use that to make many companies like his more efficient. I find that pretty rare to to see that pattern out there. I think Part of it is the function of the size and maturity of the company that you're partnering with, right? So if you're partnering with a big tech company, as an example, like they're not going to be super flexible in, in, in that. But smaller companies, and I think this is the value of partnering with smaller companies, you can get much more creative on kind of a two-step strategic partnership that starts with digital transformation of their company and unique IP that together you can sell to other companies like them. Yeah. The, so I actually have a potential referral for you, speaking of referrals, and I'm just thinking about them particularly. One of the things, one of the reasons why this would be such a great introduction for me to make is them having a very clear AI ML strategy and ideally some productized solution around that is going to massively increase their enterprise value. And that is almost an unfreezing of a certain asset because yeah. it allows their future cash flows to be much higher and therefore allows them to be more attractive as an investment vehicle or to be acquired. And there's actually multiple companies that I'm working with where this is the structure where we're increasing the, their enterprise value, using that to raise eight, nine figures in investment and then targeting eventually a nine or 10 figure acquisition where the marginal increase in the technology portion of that equation is coming from AI, ML, predictive, prescriptive, 
And as we're talking, I'm thinking about how I've advised them to essentially extend the capabilities of their products to encompass the AI ML part. None of these companies have domain expertise in that space. Yeah. So I guess to boil all this down, you plus a traditional company that doesn't have expertise in the space equals 10x in their enterprise value, which is worth something, not exactly clear on what the unit economics should be, but that's an yeah. That's very interesting. I, we, I don't think you mentioned this earlier, but we work with a large diversity of companies size-wise and industry-wise. And maybe even the healthcare space, like a lot of our clients are healthcare technology companies. And to your point, like they are amazing at building software in their domain, but they lack kind of the data platform, data analytics, AI capabilities. And I think What's fun for us is when we work with other software engineers and product managers is they want to learn this stuff, right? So it's not like, hey, you go off and do this thing, build us a component and come back. It's like, they're all, I think everybody wants to be a data scientist this, these days, right? And so these type of engagements tend to be very collaborative and we learn about their domain. They learn more about AI. And at the end of the day, either they have some IP or they have some IP plus some know-how that they didn't have before because it was too risky for them to try to get that know-how in their day-to-day job. So particularly with these kind of scale-up funded startups, they, don't, they just don't have time or energy capability to put a lot of risk on their current software should they become data scientists. It's such a distraction from the core business and the core competency. Yep. The build versus buy, it's almost always buy. Yeah. That's at least yeah. my advice to them because otherwise they're fragmenting their focus way too much. And they're essentially going to have to build a synaptic to. Yeah. And I think at least in the tech companies, they may be able to keep them. I think what's tough is in the industry oriented businesses, let's say our agriculture as yeah. an example, it's hard to keep those people intact, right? There's so many jobs for them and yeah. they have so many options that. A lot of our clients that try to build data science teams, right. they attrit within a year or two. Right. So. so the equation that emerging just to wrap up this conversation is synaptic plus potentially even a non-tech company or semi-tech company that when they augment their solution with some AI ML capabilities, exponentially increases their enterprise value funded scaling up, looking for some sort of exit or a large raise, that seems like the right schematics for a marriage made in heaven. Yeah. And our experience, and we don't have as many relationships as you do with these scale-ups, was that kind of ground to a halt this summer because a lot of the investors and then scale-ups said, you're going to need to hold your cash for the next 18 to 24 months. And so a lot of those more innovative strategic scale-ups said, oh, let, you know, let's slow down and focus on our core. So that was one of the reasons why it had not as great of an economic year for Synaptic. I'm, I'm going to make an introduction after we wrap up this recording and hopefully we'll change that trajectory because I'm seeing actually a lot of companies where they're actually stepping on the gas, they're raising more money and investors are actually investing in the AI story. So I think there might still be pockets of the market where this is a home run and I'm excited for you guys to connect. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And so as we bring this to a close, what's been 
most impactful for you in this conversation? What's really stood out to you? I think some of the ideas that you were sharing around strategic partnerships and the frozen assets definitely got me thinking. I don't get a lot of opportunity to speak about strategic partners and orientation there. So I think that's super interesting to explore more. I think having a lot of relationships with different startup companies and having a pulse of the startup world is something that we aren't as involved in as we used to be. And having other folks outside the company that can bring insight there is tremendously valuable to us. We feel it on the sales side, but not strategic and kind of market-wide. And it's hard to navigate and stay on top of it, honestly. There's just so much information right now. (laughs) Yeah. So having actual real relationships with individuals that are leading these companies is something that we're eager to have more channels to, for sure. That's beautiful. Steven, I want to thank you for just bringing your full self to this conversation. It's really refreshing to interact with a leader of this level of emotional maturity, this level of grounding, this level of just balance and being so thoughtful about how you're going about building a team, building a culture, designing an organization. And I just want to acknowledge you for who you are and who you've architected yourself to be in the process of building Synaptic and looking forward to chatting more. And in the meantime, I'll leave it at that and see you guys soon. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found value, please consider leaving a five-star review to allow the show to reach more people or share this episode via your social media channels. If you're an entrepreneur and want support in exponentially scaling your business, email me at ani at animanian.com.